Hi, my name is Lindsay Adams, and you are listening to Mindful as a Mother. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic relationship, and the information given in this podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the advice of a professional. Okay, so today's topic is the argumentative child and what to do if you have an argue in your arguer on your hands. So you have a child that loves to argue, that thinks he or she is a lawyer. While this may serve them well later in life, you have to finish raising them first. So let's break down a few things about arguing and being argumentative before I give you tangible tips for those arguing kiddos. First thing, you need to ask yourself if this is a pattern or just a one-time argument. So is your child arguing just because of the mood they're in or do they have an immediate need like hunger, tired? Are they feeling angry? So typically I ask myself when any child is having a behavioral issue that seems like a one-off, halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Then the other thing I like to look at is, is their routine off? So like it's been spring break. Sam's been more argumentative than usual, probably because his routine is off. So if this is something that can be solved with meeting their basic needs, addressing some feelings, then you can move on. If it's not, and you have a chronic arguer, something I want to drive home, and this is the most important part of this whole episode, so listen up, is that arguing isn't necessarily a bad thing. While it can be frustrating and annoying, we want our children to feel safe to voice their opinions, feelings, and their disagreements with us, right? Differences of opinion. Typically, our role as parents should be to validate their feelings and to teach them to be respectful while voicing their thoughts assertively. Kids who are made to just listen and behave will likely have problems standing up for themselves later. I'm going to say that again. Kids who are made to just listen and behave can have problems standing up for themselves later. So while arguing isn't necessarily a bad thing, our role as parents is how to teach children to express themselves and argue appropriately. We also don't want to have chronic arguments that harm the parental child relationship. So that's something to address as well. The third thing to take into consideration is if there's been trauma. I probably just need to do a whole episode on trauma, but taking into consideration that trauma can have many different impacts on one child and every kid reacts differently to trauma, that the argumentative behavior could be a trauma reaction. And that's something that they definitely will need to explore in therapy. Okay. So now here are some tangible tips or things you can do if you have a chronic arguer. Number one, allow them to voice their opinions and feelings while still holding boundaries with them. So bedtime is nine, allow them to voice that they don't want to go to bed, that they're frustrated about bed while still keeping bedtime nine o'clock. 
This feels weird and uncomfortable, but it's possible. And it even gets easier the more times you do it. The more times you can validate, like, I understand that you don't want to go to bed and I don't like going to bed either. And we still have to go to bed because we have school in the morning and I want you to be rested for school. The easier it gets and the more our kids understand that we are on their team and it becomes less of a fight like them versus me with the rule and more of like a, oh, they get get me, right? Kids, even littles, tend to calm down more quickly when they feel heard and understood. And I know that as an adult, I calm down way faster when I feel heard and understood. They are also less likely to continue to argue with you because you feel like they hear, they feel like you hear them, right? So they feel heard and understood. So they don't need to keep saying the same thing or arguing over and over again about something. Another little section of this tip is compromise when possible. Don't view parenting decisions as they should just do it because you said so. When children feel like they have some control in things, they're more likely to comply even when they are doing something that they don't like or something they don't want to be doing. So giving them control when possible. Okay, so we have to get dressed. Do you want to wear the blue shirt or the red shirt? They'll typically feel like they have more control and they they don't want to get dressed, but they're happy that they get to pick the red shirt because red is their favorite color. Number two. Stop needing to be right. Now, there's going to be some truth bombs in number two. So be prepared to feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit attacked. And just remember that I love you and I'm here for you and I have your best interest in mind. And I'm about to challenge some things for you and make you think. The power struggle is often what keeps arguments going. So if a child is arguing and you feel the need to continue to argue back with them, and if they're escalating and you continue to escalate, you are the adult and you are the one keeping the argument going. Just stop arguing with them. I can take this in so many different directions. I'm just going to continue with the arguing piece for a minute, and then I'm going to go off in a totally different direction. So if you have a kid who likes to argue for attention or argues just because they like to argue, you're often continuing that argument by continuing to feed into it. Instead, be firm with your response. Stop talking to them, stop navigating them, and just wait and see what happens. Also, when we show children that we're in control, they're arguing and they're testing and they're pushing and we're just staying in control, they're less likely to push us because they can sense that you're in control. When they sense you're losing it, they lose it more too because you are their safe space. So keep that in mind. That was my little side note for you to keep in mind when dealing with any emotional outburst with your child or behavioral issue is that the more in control you are, the safer they feel because you're their safe space. So a kid, let me give you an example. A kid's arguing for attention. They argue about everything. Often they're looking for that negative reinforcement. So they will pick an argument with you. And if you just tell them what they need to do one time and then stop arguing, sometimes they will do the right thing because they want you to notice. Other times they'll keep arguing and you can say things like, 
asked and answered, or I love you and I'm not going to argue with you, which leads us right into number three. Use phrases to end the argument and then just leave it there. Some ideas are, I love you and I'm not going to argue with you. Now, you want to use these phrases when you guys have already gone back and forth, you validated their feelings and you're just getting nowhere. You know what I'm talking about. We validated feelings, no compromise is possible, and they're just upset and they want to continue to argue. And that's when you can say, I love you, but I'm not going to argue with you anymore and just stop responding. They can keep arguing. You can continue to say, I love you and I'm not going to argue with you anymore a few times. And then if they continue after that, just don't respond to them. Then you can say, when you calm down and you can want to talk, I will talk with you, but my decision is not changing. Another um, response phrase is asked and answered. When a kid asks over and over again, you can just say asked and answered, or I've already answered that. Hold firm in this. Stay firm and not feeding into the argument. Even if you have to remove yourself from the situation, if you have to go lock yourself in your bedroom to not power struggle with your kid, then that is what you need to do because you are the parent and you are the one in control. You can validate feelings, you can offer love, but you are the one in control and you have to model this not with force, not by being some big authoritarian, not by yelling. That is not how we show we're in control. We show that we are in control as parents by containing our own emotions and regulating ourselves so that we're not freaking out. Okay, next up. Problem solve when there isn't a current argument. So if you're arguing a lot with your children um, or a specific child, sit down and have a talk with them, not in the middle of an argument, and say, I notice we're arguing a lot. What can we do to argue less? Has something been going on with you lately? Have an open and honest conversation and be ready for feedback from your child about things that you are doing or not doing that they're upset about. I've done a lot of these in family therapy like a lot. And I, I'm going to offer two pieces of advice from this one, use, use your therapist. If your child has one and you feel like you need to have that conversation in therapy, then definitely do that. If there's trauma involved, then for sure use the therapist. The other pieces is like 90% of the time when I have these conversations in therapy, the thing the child wants from their parents is more time. They want one-on-one time. They want more undivided attention. They want to feel heard and seen, and they are often arguing so that they feel heard and seen. And so it's, it's the squeaky wheel, right? Like if we're not getting attention by being good or just our normal day to day, I'm going to do something to get that attention that I need. So keep that in mind if your child's arguing. And that's where like my bonus tip comes in, which is spend time together doing something fun that doesn't involve conflict or correction. So something that you can do is set a one-on-one date or a specific time or like a big event that you guys do together, or you can check in with them nightly and just spend 15 to 20 minutes talking to them about their day, having fun, joking, watching a show, and make it your goal to be to not have any conflict or criticism or correction during this time. None of the C's, conflict, criticism, or correction, because you really want that time to be like the bonding time, building the relationship time, 
building that connection. And think of it this way. Is it harder to argue with someone you like and you're getting along with and you're having fun with regularly? I'm going to say yes. Um, And my first thought is, well, I argue with my husband all the time and I really like him. But I think that we tend to argue more in times when we are not connecting as much. We are not having as much fun together. We're not laughing as much. It's easier for me to empathize with someone when I genuinely have been enjoying them, spending time with them and know them really well, right? Same thing with kids. So this time together helps you empathize with them and what they're going through and it helps them empathize with you and you have this foundation of positive interactions. So when there's time for a conflict, you're able to respond appropriately and it doesn't hinder or harm the relationship. Okay, now for a little bonus topic, we're going to talk about what to do when your kids argue with each other, which if you have multiple kids is going to have, it's going to happen. Like there's no way to prevent it. My take on it is it's actually a good thing because it teaches them to assert themselves and to respect boundaries and set boundaries. So the way I try and approach arguing is I try and not get involved if I don't have to. So I have one very outspoken child and her name is Ava. And she will yell and she will point and she will make sure that her feelings are heard or expressed. And then I have my quiet little Ella who will come to me and cry, but she won't necessarily express her feelings to her brother or her sister. So I try not to get involved unless they come to me or unless things get violent. If there's hitting, which there often is, especially in my house right now, I think with the ages of my children, if there's hitting, I will separate them, do the calm, calming down, bring them back together and figure it out. But if it's just arguing, I try not to get involved. And if I feel like I need to be involved, then I try to help everyone express their feelings. So I listen to what they're saying, make sure I understand, and then I help the other kids understand what they're saying. So if it's sissy took my toy, I'll say, okay, you are playing with that toy and you're upset because sissy took it. (gasps) And she'll say, yeah. And then I'll talk to sissy. I said, sissy was playing with that toy. Did you take it from her? Yes. How do we think we can make this right? I can give it back to her. I can say, sorry. I can, and most of the time, the other child will just give it back to them. Um, And then we can talk about like, when they're done, you can have a turn. We don't just grab things from people's hands things like that. So sibling fighting. It's good to let them learn to work their own problems out. And I think sometimes as parents, we need to be involved, especially when we're helping them express feelings and listen to feelings and then figuring out how to make situations right or compromise. So I kind of just keep my ear on it. As long as things don't get out of control, I just let them work it out. The second they do, that I'm there to help navigate the situation. And it really helps me to see myself as someone there to help guide them through the situation rather than someone there as an authority to like put my foot down. I'm going to pause right here and get real with you. I have bad days too. Some days I'm in a bad mood and I come in hot like, what the hell are you guys yelling about? Like, stop arguing 
share with each other and and then I leave it there, right? I am trying to be more mindful of how I approach these sibling conflict situations with my own children. And so I'm trying to view myself as a mediator. I go in, I'm trying to figure out what's going on and help them work it out with each other. I'm not the authoritarian in the matter. If I have to be, I will. So if it comes down to we just can't agree, then I will say, this is what's going to happen, right? I'll offer suggestions. No one agrees. I'll help guide them through expressing themselves. And if we can't come to an agreement, then this is what's going to happen. With the ages of my children, I do often end up being the one to like make the decision. And I just walk away from the situation hoping that everyone felt heard and validated. If as my kids get older and if you have older kids, I'm sure that you can they can come to their own agreements and you can figure out the best way to do things, even if it is just offering solutions and prompting them to take timeouts, communicate their feelings and all those things. But the main message of this whole podcast is that arguing isn't a bad thing. I don't want you to have this negative view of kids arguing with siblings, kids arguing with you. It is not a bad thing. It is children who are learning how to express themselves appropriately, and we just need to help them do that. We do not need to squash their voice by making them obey. And I'm going to share my golden nugget with you from this episode one last time. Kids who are made to just listen and behave will have problems standing up for themselves later. Kids who are made to just listen and behave will have problems standing up for themselves later. So if you have an arguer or two or three, I want you to pat yourself on the back because your child feels safe enough to express how they feel. Good job, mom. Now, Let's do our mom fails. Okay, so the mom fails are going to be kind of short this week because I have a very special surprise for you at the end of this episode. So hang on until the end to hear the surprise. So I posted for mom fail submissions on Sunday evening. It was Easter evening. A lot of the submissions I got were about Easter and the Easter bunny and holidays. And so, um, if you have small children with you, maybe skip this part or pause this or listen to this without them around because yeah. So I'll give you a second to do that. Okay. Real talk. Like all of the submissions I got almost were about people feeling like they failed at Easter or, uh, forgot to be the Easter bunny or forgot to do enough or their child discovered them being the Easter bunny. And here is my, my thought on it. Okay. So I realized there was no Santa Claus when I found a made in China sticker on something in my stocking. And I was like, Hmm, this isn't right. Like, So I asked my mom and I said, this says made in China. Like I thought Santa made his toys in the North Pole. And then I was kind of like, well, if Santa like makes his toys in the North Pole, but I can buy the same toys in Toys R Us because Toys R Us was like a thing back then. And my great grandma and my grandma, I think would, would take me to Toys R Us and let me pick a toy for like my birthday or Christmas or whatever. 
um, like, how does that work? And, and so then at that point, I think my mom just said like, Hey kid, there's no Santa Claus. And then, you know, the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy and all that are a sham too. So, um, and then that's, you know, when the fun stops because parents don't try as hard and in their defense, like in my parents' defense, I wouldn't have either at that point. Like once I knew I probably won't try as hard once my kids know that that's not a thing. And I'm going to take all the credit for those presents. You better believe that I'm going to be like, yes, you better thank me and your father for working so hard for these things. Anyway, so that was kind of a tangent, but I think that parents put a lot of pressure on themselves around holidays, specifically moms. And the pressure comes from the desire for our kids to have the best holidays possible and the best experiences. And a lot of parents, I think, recognize the stress in their own parents that holidays were stressful or a hard time. Or if you have trauma that was around the holidays or any of that, you like, as a mother, you want to do better by your kids. And I think things have just changed a lot too, since I was a child. So I'm 32. Um, and when I was a kid, like St. Patrick's Day wasn't a, like a holiday thing. Like we wore green, hoped we didn't get pinched. The leprechaun would visit us at school, but there were no like treats, baskets, outfits, things like that. Like I just had to find a green shirt in my closet. And now it is a little different. It feels like there's this pressure to, you know, give a gift for St. Patrick's Day and get big Easter gifts. And so I just want to remind all the moms that even if you feel like you failed on Easter or you didn't do it how everyone else is doing it, or showing it on social media, you are doing amazing and you are doing holidays in your own way. And that's okay. Like my fail was, I was feeling really bad on Sunday night because we didn't even do like an egg hunt for the kids, I don't think. And then my sister-in-law saved the day and did one on Easter Monday for me. But like, I was thinking, gosh, they didn't even do an egg hunt. Like, I can't believe I didn't do that. We dyed eggs, did the whole thing. We just didn't ever like hide them and have them find them, which... So, um, and I think, you know, they stood a great day, even without the egg hunt and they ended up having one the day after, but still. So I just want everyone to take a deep breath, take a step back from being really hard on yourself about holidays and recognize that everyone is in a different financial situation. Everyone does holidays differently and, and that's okay. And you don't have to do Easter how everyone else on Instagram does Easter, I also think that it's important at some point to remind our kids if there's religion in your life, if you celebrate Easter for the religious reasons, like why we're celebrating that and, you know, that family is most important and relationships are most important. And at the end of the day, honestly, when I look back at my own childhood, what I remember about holidays, I don't remember specific gifts. Um, Like I remember a few, like I remember a Barbie dollhouse somewhere in there for Christmas. Um, but I just remember like the fun things we did together as a family surrounding the holidays and that Easter, Easter was always like a scavenger hunt with sidewalk chalk. I remember that that's something that sticks out to me. And I think of positively, I don't think back and think of like every little gift I was given. I don't remember that. So just a reminder that your kids will often remember the feelings associated with the holiday rather than the specific gift and don't beat yourself up over it. It's okay. It's just a holiday. It's just Easter. 
It is one day. It does not make up your motherhood or who you are or how good of a mother you are. So that's my mom fail reminder of the week. And my surprise for you guys is super awesome, I think. Um, And I went back and forth whether or not to share this, but I decided ultimately to share it because after Tim's episode where he talked a little bit about male infertility, I got a lot of people reaching out and thanking me for that and saying how helpful it was. So I thought I would share a little bit about um, how my girls came to be because we are celebrating their third birthday on Saturday. Um, so it'll be a few days after this airs, but the three year mark of me being a twin mom has really made me think back on the last three years and kind of how they came into this world. And so I'm going to have to share in parts cause it's too long, but I'll share about how that happened. And then when we get closer to Sam's birthday, I'll share about his, which is, you know, got a lot more infertility in the beginning, but So just a little backstory, just so you can understand where we were at the time. So it took us three years to have Sam. I did the math on it today, so I could tell you guys. Three years, and let's see. So we did two fresh IVF cycles, one frozen cycle, another fresh one, and then on our fifth cycle, our fourth fresh cycle, but our fifth total, that's when we got pregnant with Sam. And... If you know anything about IVF, you know that that is a lot of time and money that just to go to get that to that point and stress emotionally and hormones put into my body. So we get pregnant with Sam. Sam was a twin and we miscarried his twin. And then we went through the pregnancy. His birth was traumatic. He almost died after birth. So like coming into having my girls getting pregnant with them or even thinking about having a second child because that's where I was. There was a lot of trauma. Like I was just anxious. I was a freaking wreck, right? I was adjusting to having one child and I was just a wreck. So it was, let me set the scene. It was July of 2017 when we decided to try for another baby. Sam turned three and or two, sorry, in August So we were going to try to get pregnant because we wanted our kids to be about three years apart. So Tim was working this kind of weird job where he worked on at a mine in Nevada. So he would leave later, like when I got off work on Monday nights, and then he would drive three, four, three hours to Nevada and work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, drive home really late Friday night, and then he would be home. So he he was doing that. And so scheduling and planning IVF was a little bit tricky because we had like the, all these doctor's appointments I had to go to and blood draws. And then they give you like a 48, I think hour notice on your egg retrieval, which is where they go in and they retrieve your eggs. And he does the sperm sample and all that. And then in like three to five days later is when they do the transfer. And so obviously he wanted to be there for that as well. So it was a little tricky planning, but his work was great with us and we, we made it work. So, and I remember starting in July because there was this camping trip I wanted to go on and I did not want to be doing shots or IVF during the camping trip. And so I remember starting like right after the camping trip. And when we decided to do it, we purchased the money back guarantee, um, section, right. Of the. IVF because I was 
thinking it was going to take five cycles like it did with Sam. So I'm thinking like, okay, that we're in this for the long haul. We're just going to start or there's no way we're going to get pregnant on the first cycle. So we paid the extra money to have like the money back guarantee. And what happens with that is if you go through the cycles and you don't get pregnant, you get your a portion of your money back, I think, or all of your money back. Um, and you have to like meet these qualifications to even qualify to do that um, program. And when I went in to do my blood work to get started having them, I had like something funky that we didn't have when we were trying with Sam with me. So like my hormones were premenopausal. Like I was, my hormones were that of like a 35 year old woman and I was like 27 or 28. So that made it, I, we like barely qualified for the money back guarantee. So I started having all this anxiety because I'm thinking I want three kids and I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know how long five cycles is going to take. Like, so we may only have one child. And I was grateful for that because it took a lot to even get Sam here, but I was ready to try for the second. So we start the process and we do the shots and, you know, Tim deals with my craziness because, um, the hormones are no joke. The egg retrieval part is the hardest. So you give yourself like a shot every day or two or three every day at the same time. You go on every other day to get your blood taken and they do an ultrasound and they adjust your meds and it's just super intense. So, and I, and I have Sam at that time. So I'm trying to parent and work and Tim's out of town for work while I'm doing all that. And it was just a lot of stress. I remember that. And you just feel yucky and crazy and hormonal. So kudos to Tim for putting up with me during that time. So the egg retrieval comes back and I can't remember how many eggs we got, but I do know that we have two, two or three embryos left. So we had enough left over to freeze a few extra. So, and then the transfer rolls around, everything's pretty smooth, nothing super memorable about that. We did transfer two embryos because we had transferred to a Sam. We did have the twin situation, but um, because of how long it took me to get pregnant with Sam, they were, and I was younger, they were like, okay, we can transfer two, it's fine. So we transferred two, and I remember I went on this girls weekend that I go on every year, except for last year, thanks COVID. And normally, like, I'm not a big drinker, but I usually drink this weekend because it's just like me and my friends in a cabin and we play games and do crafts and drink wine. So it's a good time. Anyway, so I went on that and I didn't drink. And I remember like thinking like, I don't know why that's memorable, but I remember being there and feeling like I, I'm for sure pregnant. But I had these like doubts in my mind because I had thought I was pregnant for three years before we had Sam every month. Like whether we did IVF or not, I think I'm pregnant. I hope I'm pregnant and then wouldn't be pregnant. So I was really just preparing myself to not have it work, even though like I felt pregnant. I knew I was pregnant, but I was like convincing myself like this is not going to work the first time. It's going to take a while. I was guarding my heart to the disappointment of another failed IVF cycle which is a feeling I knew very well by that point. So the two-week wait is what the period between your transfer and when you can take a pregnancy test or when they do a blood draw. And that it's like the longest two weeks of your life, pretty much. So we get to the day, and I remember I had taken a pregnancy test in the morning. Um, you can choose to take them or not, depending on what they, you know, how you feel. Uh, I remember with my first cycles, I was taking them like every day when I could, and it would just be like negative, negative, negative. So I'd gotten to the point where I would just like take it the day that I did my blood draw. I took it the day I did my blood draw. It was positive. 
And then I went and did my blood draw. So I had a feeling it was going to come back positive. They called me, told me it was positive. We were super happy, super shocked that it had like worked the first time. Yeah, we're just amazed and disappointed because we had paid all this extra money for the money back guarantee. And then, of course, it doesn't work out. So, but we were excited, thrilled, didn't really care about the money loss. And then you go in, I think, a week later and you have an ultrasound. So this ultrasound, I was not, I somehow didn't see my regular fertility doctor. He was out of town or something. We were even in a different office. It was kind of a weird situation. Um, and I think maybe the thing was is like, Tim was home and we wanted to do it when Tim was home and my doctor wasn't available. So we went to that ultrasound and they told us, um, you're about five weeks along, so they can't see a heartbeat, but they can only see like the sack, right? So they look at it. They tell us there's just the sack, just one sack. So we're like, okay, there's one baby in there. That's it. And I was feeling like pretty disappointed one that I didn't have my regular doctor, but very relieved for some reason that there was only one sack because the Sam has been our wild child. Pretty difficult. That's about the time we were noticing he has some delays and some struggles. And so I just, the thought of Tim being out of town and me having three very small children was very overwhelming to me. And so, and because of like the miscarriage trauma with twins, I really didn't want twins. I I was very like, I just want one, one at a time. Motherhood is hard. Just one. So I was really relieved that there was one. Um, and I didn't like that doctor. And so I'm like, okay, good. We get to go back to my regular doctor in I think it's two weeks. And they do another ultrasound. And this is where they look for the heartbeat. So we go back in two weeks. And I'll never forget this. We're laying there and I'm laying there doing the ultrasound and he's like, okay, so there's two sacks and two heartbeats. And we're like, what are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And then he's like flipping through my records. He's like, oh, they only saw one last time. And we're like, yeah. So there's two sacks, two heartbeats. So we had him like check and double check, make sure there wasn't three, make sure there really was two. And I was shocked. Like I've never had something that unexpected happen to me in my life. Cause I for sure just thought that there was one baby in there. And then I cried for like four straight weeks, pretty much. I, I think we told people maybe just our family knew we were pregnant and people that knew we were doing IVF, but I had announced my twins prior before I'd miscarried the one. So I didn't want to do that again. I didn't want to deal with that heartbreak again. And I was just so anxious because I thought that I was going to lose one of them because it had happened before and I had been so excited for twins before and I just thought I was going to lose one. And then on the other hand, I was so nervous that it was actually going to stick and I would have these three young, young kids that I'm trying to take care of while I have a job and while my husband is working out of town during the week. So I was like not in a great place emotionally and I was so sick. I remember I wouldn't take Zofran because I had taken Zofran with Sam in my first twin pregnancy. And then there's all those people saying Zofran causes miscarriages. I don't know if it does or doesn't, but I had blamed myself so much for that first miscarriage 
because I thought I had caused it by taking Zofran or drinking too much Diet Coke. And so I refused to take Zofran and I was just so sick. They eventually gave me Diclegis, which I think they have other things now anyway, but that takes a while to build up in your system. And even with that, I just was so tired and so sick that I literally laid on the couch while Sam played and watched TV for my whole first trimester, pretty much like it was exhausting. So we had gotten switched to a high risk doctor and it wasn't the same OB as before because of all the Sam complications. I could do a three hour long podcast about that, but we switched to a different doctor at the U. She was amazing and she was like very comforting. And I told her all my concerns about having twins and my history. And so she made me feel very um, like comfortable and relieved. And I had an ultrasound at pretty much every visit because I was so anxious. And like the first thing I would want to see when they came in the room was, and, and I told them I'm an anxious wreck. So when you start the ultrasound, I just need you to tell me you see both heartbeats first and then you can like move on with whatever else you need to do. But because I remember looking for that second heartbeat during my first pregnancy and how traumatic that was, that the first thing I want to hear is that there's two heartbeats. So they would do that. They would say there's two heartbeats and then they would, you know, measure the heartbeats and look at them and say, oh, they're doing well. So um, I get through the first trimester and we get to the, I think the 15 week mark is when we found out they were girls. So we went to it's this place called Fetal Photo. It's in the mall and you just pay these people to like look their ultrasound text, but it's not like at a doctor's office or anything and to, to do the ultrasound. So we had both of our families there. We did the ultrasound and I remember, um, the first one they were like, okay, it's a girl. And Tim's like, what are you sure? And he was so afraid to have a girl. Like he turned white. And then the second one was a girl. And he was like, no, cause we thought for sure there would be like one boy and one girl because we knew they were fraternal. And he looked like he was going to pass out. And he just like sat down and he like, didn't talk for like four hours and he's just like processing like how do I be a girl dad how do I raise girls raising girls is so scary and I just remember we're walking out of the mall and we had to walk through forever 21 and this is when crop tops like just started being a thing so we're thinking 2017 here guys so crop tops just started being a thing I mean belly shirts have kind of always been a thing but so we're walking out and there's all these like teenage mannequins with crop tops on because it's the new hip thing and he looks at me and he says I can't be a girl dad our girls are never dressing like this <laughs> and and I just laughed because I mean if your kids dress like that no judgment from me but that was his first fear of you know we just found out we're having these two girls he doesn't know how to be a girl dad and we're walking out and there's crop tops so that was kind of a funny memory that I have about that and so then at this point, like we're feeling like I'm feeling more secure about the fact that I'm going to have twins and I know that they're girls and I'm feeling a little weird about that because I thought for sure I'd have one girl, one boy. Now I'm super glad that they're both girls. Um, looking back, like it's just logistically it's easier, like as far as like clothing goes and shoes, like they can share everything. Um, and they are really good friends and they are very different. Not that a boy and girl wouldn't be friends, but it's really cool to see the sister relationship in twins. 
but also like, I don't know why. I think I was just afraid to have two girls for some reason because girls seemed so daunting and so hard to raise. Um, when really, I don't know. I mean, I think it's all hard. Girls are hard. Boys are hard. Parenting is just hard. So, you know, Tim's shocked. It took him forever to process that. And so then at this point, we're like, okay, we really are having twins. We're having twin girls. And uh, I'm going to have three kids under three for a while. And then I was just so worried. I remember just being so worried I couldn't handle it. And I'm the kind of person that like, I like to know exactly how things are going to go. Like I like to have a plan. I like to have it set. I like to know what it's going to look like. And you can't plan that with kids. You just can't. I knew I was going to be tired. I knew I was going to be alone a lot of the time. I knew that I had struggled with postpartum anxiety and depression with Sam. I knew that Sam had almost died when he was born. And I just had all this anxiety like in me. And I just was a wreck pretty much the entire pregnancy. But I was starting to get a little more excited, planning girl nurseries, planning all of those things, thinking of names. And so I'll leave it there and we'll continue next week um, with their how they came to be story. Um, But happy birthday, Ava and Ella. And I can't imagine not having two baby girls now that I look back. So I'm very proud that they are my daughters. I hope you enjoyed this. Remember, be peace, be love, be mindful as a mother. If you want more of Mindful as a Mother, you can find me on Instagram at Lynn's underscore Adams LCSW. Once again, at Lynn's L-I-N-D-S underscore Adams LCSW. Thank you.